M&K Talk YA now presents Flame in the Mist, Part 1, by Renea Diaz. another episode of M&K Talk YA. I'm Katie Bradford. And I'm Marissa Snyder. And this is our young adult fiction podcast. And we started a new series this week. The book is called Flame in the Mist by Renee Adia. And yep. we read up to, I forget now. Chapter Hanami. Chapter Hanami. Yep. Yes. And this is a duology, which I feel like every series we've read this season has been a duology. Yeah, we've done a lot of those. They're trending, and I'm loving it because I think a duology is like the perfect length for a series. Trilogies, they get too long. Well, my problem with trilogies, and we've had some really good ones, but a lot of times I feel like the second book, it's like unnecessarily three books, you know? Mm -hmm. I feel like usually a duology, like you can have a story that finishes, but there's something left unfinished, and then you like, you know, you expand the scope or you do something in the second book a lot of trilogies i feel like the second book it's sort of just like a filler book yeah it's a bridge usually yeah but yeah i'm enjoying the duologies too except it's making like the whole this whole season is the timings felt weird because we've the books are you know duologies just go faster the way we've been recording around all of <laughs> my issues and our travels and everything it's been like we talk to each other every other day and then we haven't talked in a month three weeks yeah, yeah. three weeks almost yeah. a month so it's weird. It's crazy to be back, actually. I was just thinking about that today because I was like, oh my God, I haven't called Katie. Like, I feel so strange. Like, my <laughs> week is not complete without us having our hour-long discussion about YA fiction. Well, it's, I so I just had surgery and I'm still recovering from that. And I thought I'd be reading all these books. Like, I made – I can't even carry anything <gasps> – really, but I made my fiance bring like a bunch of books to the hospital because I was going to be there for like a week. And I haven't felt like reading at all. And then I started yeah. this book and I got really into it again. I'm like, oh, I still like to read. Oh, I think good. just the book I was reading, I wasn't into or something. I need to, I should have known YA fiction's what I need to do all the yeah. time. I mean, it's so perfect when you're like kind of sick and you want just something comforting and like familiar. That's exactly what I would go to. Yeah, it's easy. You don't have to, um, you know, like it's just, it's easy to get into and I don't know. Did you have any good coming out of surgery stories, coming out of anesthesia? I was absolutely miserable when I came out of anesthesia. Oh, no. I don't, I, well, so the only thing I remember, my aunt came, she lives in town, so she was like there when I came out and I like couldn't open my eyes or respond. They all thought I was still out of it and she had to leave and I did, I love you in sign language. <laughs> That's the only like funny thing that I think happened because I oh like couldn't, gosh. I just like raised my hand and was like, I love, but I couldn't like talk. I didn't even open my That's eyes. That's the only way yet. you could respond. And yeah, oh my, my first day I was regretting everything because... I felt so bad and that, like I just had a hard time coming off the anesthesia and I was yeah just miserable but then I recovered really quickly and as I mean like in terms of that part the anesthesia part was over pretty quick so Ooh, the next no. day was good but I then my fiance ended up going to the hospital my second day there he was hanging out <laughs> with me and I made my mom take him downstairs to the emergency room and he ended up a few doors down for me because he got sick too yeah he had a oh my yeah God. Oh my goodness. It's just, I saw the post on Facebook about you guys like both being on the same floor, just yeah. like four doors down, and like the nurses like wheeling you out to see each other. Well, I was, I was kind like... of mad because he ended up with a better view, like a better room than I did. And I was sort of like, hello guys, I've been here and I we planned this. But my mom was so funny. This is she... supposed to be all about me. <laughs> yeah, she kept like checking in on me and then him until his mom came into town. She'd like, look, she's like, uh, you know, a room opened a few doors down. Let's see if, you know, we can get it. First she was trying to get me moved this is before he went to the er she was like i think that person's going home soon and they have a better view we should try and move you in there and then oh of course when gosh. they went home she was like let's see if we can get james up there but this is um, like an episode of gray's anatomy <laughs> or something it would like luckily it's a good story yeah it has a good ending because otherwise i would just be annoyed but yeah it's been <laughs> well it's been interesting i'm glad you recovered and doing a little bit better yeah and toby it has his cone off now and Oh, good. Oh, my gosh. I forgot. It's, he got bit by a 
Brown recluse? Yeah, that's what we're not sure, but yeah, oh he has some gosh. kind of spider bite. And... It's been it's been very exciting. The day before you go into <laughs> surgery, your dog gets bitten by a brown recluse. I remember getting your text messages at work, and I was just like, I went off on my coworker, and I was just like. She has the worst luck. I don't know what's going on. I like, feel like we all need to be thinking about her. <laughs> I feel like I'm one of those people who has like terrible excuses. Like I just don't want to do anything and I have to keep coming up with more elaborate excuses, except it's just actually my life. <laughs> oh my God. You are really due for some good luck. Yeah. Speaking of people who are due for some good luck. Oh, everyone in this book. Yeah. So <laughs> this is crazy stuff. So, Mariko is our main character, although I am right. liking how we're seeing a couple different perspectives throughout so far. Uh, oh, oh, of Mariko? Well, you know, we're seeing her story, and then we're seeing her twin kind of looking for her oh, in yes. a couple of chapters, and we saw the Kenshin. one chapter from the Emperor's point of view as well. True, true. Okay, yeah. So, let's talk about, do you want to talk about Mariko first, our main character? I think so, right? That's kind of... Yeah, okay. This is, like, totally the it. kind of book... That I, I like, for some reason, I always love books where girls have to pretend to be boys. I don't know why. <laughs> Me too. No, I do too. And you know what? So does the author. Because I was reading an interview with Renea Dia, and she was saying when she was little, she was always fascinated by stories of girls dressing up as boys. And her um, favorite series was my favorite series growing up, um, the Alana series by Tamara Pierce. Mm-hmm. Did you read those? I didn't read those. I read something else by oh. her that I really... I don't know why I didn't read them. They're totally up my alley, but... She did a lot. She did Wild Magic. She She's written, like, a bunch of stories, but I loved Alana. That was my favorite one, because she was just... It was just such a fun story, and, like, she was such a great character for, for young girls, I thought. I always feel weird about it, though. I'm like, should I... Like, why do I feel like I need to like characters who have to pretend to be boys to do this stuff? You know, like, it's kind of like this to weird... stuff done, Yeah. Thing, but I like how Mariko's kind of dealing with that too. You know, she's like, I've had to follow what my family wanted, or, you know, I couldn't. Basically, she's embracing this freedom that she's feeling from it, but I think also mm-hmm. sort of like it's not really fair that as a woman I couldn't do this stuff. And, it, you know, I don't know. I feel like right. it's it kind of addressing bad. it too a little bit. Yeah. Or, I don't know. But the, the problem at the root of it feels bad, even though it's like an entertaining concept. Yeah. So she, she was attacked, someone tried to kill her. Yeah, she was on her way to marry the Emperor's illegitimate son. Yep. Raiden. So which one? Yeah, Raiden is the... And he's the older one, and he's also the war one. I was kind of getting confused because I just, like, read something wrong, I think, at the beginning, and I had to go back and, like, clarify for myself. But so the Emperor has two sons, one from, like, the girl he really loves, um, and that's Raiden, and that's... He's, like, military... He's very strong and that kind of stuff, right? Yeah. And then the second son is from the person he actually married the empress yeah yeah. the empress and he's very tactical it sounds like or very clever or something like that like it yeah so they're like a good team but it's also interesting because it seems like the mistress and the empress hate each other based on the little bit we've seen which makes sense but it does seem kind of weird do these brothers really get along the little bit we've seen yes but I'm kind of curious if they're really a team or not. So I almost lost track of time tonight and I almost forgot to call you because I was watching Rain. <laughs> it's our favorite TV show. And and I was watching a part with um, Bash and Francis. And I was like, oh my God, it's like Raiden and Because <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of like these two, I mean, it has to be hard if you're two children who are raised together, even if you know, let's say your your mothers don't necessarily get along, but like you can see how it would be very easy for two boys of the same age to fall into a friendship if they're kind of thrown together. And it seems like that's the case in the book. Especially if you're kind of alone in this cl- sure. class of people almost. Like half the people you know probably are like serving, like even the other boys you know aren't really at your level, but like this is kind of the closest thing to a peer you get at that, you know, royalty-ish level or whatever. Right, right. So I'm curious to know too if they are as good friends as they seem or if there's some kind of power play at hand. Because even with even without the mothers hating each other and that potentially poisoning the well against each other, you know, there's usually a lot of tension between, you know, who is the rightful heir kind of stuff, sure. you know, like, or like killing off your competition or, you know, that kind of, like, I'm just, I'm kind of curious to see that play out. But I, I love strong sibling relationships, so I'm kind of hoping they are good together. Yeah, me too. But even, um, like, the Emperor Minamoto, he was talking about how he was, he executed his childhood friends yeah. to prevent them from challenging his reign. So, like, that idea of 
who has the right to rule, I think might come into play here. Okay, and so are those childhood friends the dads of Okami and Ranmaru? I'm probably saying those names wrong. Oh, Okami and Ranmaru? Ranmaru, yeah. Is that their dads? That's what I thought, too. We are jumping so far ahead. Okay, yeah, I know. (laughs) But yes, yes, that's what I thought, too, because... Yeah, they were saying how Okami and Ramaru were friends and they were in, like, one of them was betrayed. And that's what I was like, oh, I bet Roku is the third child. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, let's let's back up. Though. Okay, sorry. <laughs> so this book is set in feudal Japan. <laughs> we forgot to mention that. So we've got samurais. And, yeah. yeah. And there's also, like, elements of magical... There's, like, magic happening, too, which is a little strange. Yeah, it reminded me of, like, magical realism. I mean, it's, like, that same idea of the magical realism type of... It's... It doesn't... It's not, like, ma- it's not abnormal magic, you know? It's, like, just part right. of... It's part of the world. Yeah. Yeah. And, like... And, and, you know, what's interesting is how it's it's incorporated into it using Japanese legends, too. Like, whenever... So, Mariko gets attacked by what she thinks is... The, thinks is the black clan and then they end up recruiting her and while she kind of she dresses is she recruited kind of yeah it's a little i bit, don't know yeah <laughs> it's like a very <laughs> weird I, i'm glad like my sorority recruitment was nothing like that but um <laughs> <laughs> being forced to watch a boy get eaten by a plant yeah oh man so that's what i was thinking of like with the magic that um they find a boy who was who infiltrates their camp and he's attacked by this jubo- juboko and i looked that up because i was like where did she even get this idea of a carnivorous plant that attacks people? I thought we left that behind in the world of... Um, <laughs> that weird planet, yeah. What was it? <laughs> Carve the mark. Carve the mark. Yeah, so the juboko, it's a plant. It is a tree, an actual tree based on Japanese folklore. And in their legend, it's a tree that lives off of human blood. Ooh. Yeah. This is awesome. I need to look at more of the connections. Yeah, I, th- I think it's... The magic kind of threw me for a loop, though, because I was expecting this to be not a second world fantasy. I was expecting it to be, like, very much rooted in feudal Japan. And then adding these magical elements confused me a little bit. And honestly, I was a little disappointed because I don't think the book needs it. Well, I'm kind of curious to see if it relates more to the... Like, we don't really know much about this magic and if it relates more to these legends and stuff. Like like I said, sort of the magical realism of Latin American literature, I, like, studied it in high school school has to do with a lot of the cultural aspects and it's just kind of part of you know the way the world is set up so I'm kind of curious to do a little more research on is this more of a like fantasy element or is this more of a cultural aspect of of it yeah I don't know but it is interesting that um what's um that Raiden's mother the emperor's consort she is she is magical as well. There was like that small part of the book where she was like using witchcraft or something. Kaneko mm-hmm. is her name. And that threw me for a loop. That's like the first time we kind of really saw the magic. And I was like, oh, is she? I, I didn't realize that people could just do magic in this world. So it, it kind of tripped me up for a little bit. Yeah. What happened in the forest at first? Like, was that oh, related to the they same thing? They had um, the night beasts. Mm-hmm. They're like this cross between jaguars and bears, and one seemed like it was warning her, and then it disappeared. So I don't know. There's definitely like there's magic in the book, but I I'm hoping that it doesn't detract from it because right now I'm like it's unnecessary for me at least right now. Yeah, and I don't think it's gonna be like the answer. I'm hoping like I feel like that would be like sort of a cop outy thing if it's like yeah. oh well because like she learns some magic and then she can defeat her enemies or something like that. Yeah. Seems kind of- not good enough, but if it's more than that. Like, I'm plenty interested. I'm plenty interested in it just being a book about a girl who dresses up like a guy, learns some cool battle tactics, and, like, takes back her control over her life. Like, that is done. I'm sold right there. I don't need any magic. Like, I'm already super entertained by that idea. Yeah. A girl who proves herself and, yeah. 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 Like, that's enough. I don't think, I don't know. I don't think the book needs magic to um to keep readers entertained or it doesn't really add anything in my mind yeah but we'll see yeah I'm kind of I, I have a lot of questions about it but I, I sort of agree with your skepticism at the moment or whatever you want to call it but yeah so what's do you know much I didn't actually do much author research this week do you know what her background is or why she picked feudal Japan or any of this stuff did you look into that yeah a little bit so Renee Dia, she also wrote another duology right yes she wrote the wrath and the dawn which is another duology. I only read the first one. But I was doing a little bit of research about her her background. And she spent... 
Her mother is from South Korea, and she spent some time living there. And um, so that's why she said she likes to channel that into her writing, and um, she wanted to incorporate Asian influence into her books, and she specifically chose... She she said it was kind of funny because she was like, there's a reason that a girl from South Korea chose to write a book set in a fantasy feudal Japan inspired by the traditional Chinese ballad of Mulan. (laughs) So she really wanted um, to incorporate a lot of Asian cultures into her story. I think that's so great. And I haven't read a ton that has a lot of Asian influence. So it's all new, like it's a lot of new stuff for me, which is kind of cool. It's great too. I mean... And I love kind of the variety and, you know, the different books we read because our last book was based in like a completely different planet solar system Mm -hmm. area and then you know sometimes we go to these futuristic or historic parts of the real world and sometimes we go to like a completely different place and so I love the variety that we get there we haven't been to feudal Japan yet. no we haven't this is a first for us and I'm loving it I'm really liking it too and I just also I just love Mulan is probably my favorite Disney movie so reading a book that's based off of Mulan is like really exciting (laughs) My graduation from high school. This is a really random story. I okay. rewrote the <laughs> lyrics to I'll Make a Man Out of You about, I was in the IB program, the International Baccalaureate program. So it was I'll Make an IB Kid Out of You and performed <laughs> it. I can't sing. I don't even know why this was an idea I had that I thought was a good one or how I convinced anyone to let me do this. But I like performed it at our graduation with a couple of my friends. By yourself? With a couple of my friends. Oh, okay. Yeah. That would have been brave. But. Yeah, Mulan is great was the moral of that story somehow. <laughs> but there's also like some differences. Well, I guess there's a little bit of differences. So I think it's interesting in this book, in the beginning, Mariko is very much almost resigned to kind of her fate where she's like traveling to go meet the emperor's son. And yeah, she's not like, fighting she really... it. She's very much accepted yeah. it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And she's just kind of. it's actually kind of sad to look back now that we know how much she's done to see her again in the first half where she was just kind of very passive and just kind of going along with it but also like depressed a little bit yeah well it's it's also interesting I mean even when she kind of decides to go on this journey a lot of it had to do with her thing or not a lot of it but part of it she kind of thought through if I get out of here should I go home no my reputation Mm -hmm. will be ruined any you know like it was sort of like it, I mean, it is just kind of an interesting gender view of this era or this world or, you know, yeah. this, this place and time. But um, yeah, her first thought is like, oh, my gosh, not only did my entire envoy get slaughtered, my fr- my friends who I've known my entire life have gotten killed. Now, me being this victim and this survival of this horrible accident, the first thing I have to think of is my reputation. Like, that is terrible. Yeah, and bringing, like, shame to her family. And, and bringing yeah. shame to my family when it wasn't even at all your fault. Yeah. And But then I think it's also interesting that she was like, well, I can, this is a way I can take power. I can take, you know, control over my life by figuring out who tried to kill me and why. Mm-hmm. And I think it's cool that, like, she's, so her brother Kenshin is tracking her and she's purposely dodging him. Oh, like, she's avoiding yeah. getting captured, I think, by him, because she wants to be the one to solve the puzzle of, of who attacked her, which I think is kind of cool. I agree. And I think it actually inspired some of my research this week, too. So I Ooh. looked into tracking and covering tracks and things related to that. But I came across okay. the story of Christopher Thomas Knight. Have you ever heard of him? No. He's also known as the North Pond Hermit. And oh my gosh. he lived <laughs> in Maine for 27 years in the woods with no human contact. 27 years? Or, yeah, roughly 30 or three decades. So I think one account Whoa. I read said 27 years, but I'm not sure if that's entirely accurate. But he walked into the woods at age 20 and survived there for 27 years and was planning to spend the rest of his life there. And Mostly how he survived was he would raid different cabins and camps nearby. So he committed approximately a thousand burglaries and he'd, you know, steal food, reading material, propane tanks, (laughs) um, and, you know, other things he needed. He'd like borrow canoes and then put them back and cover them with pine straw. And those people must have been so confused. Yeah. So like this whole town, like, you know, there's 
40 burglaries a year and even though he never like did anything violent or anything it's just like a peace of mind concept too to like have people yes. come into your or some you know they didn't know if it was one person multiple people a group of kids you know like people didn't know some people would leave notes that were like let me know what you need and I'll leave it out for you just please don't break into my house but they never got a response yeah, yeah I mean it's just kind of this sort of crazy story and he was eventually captured and arrested ultimately sort of I think he was diagnosed as partially autistic or potentially had Asperger's mm-hmm. so I think that was also part of it like he didn't like human contact and you know I mean like so that at least affected him afterwards when he was in jail jail was like really really hard for him oh yeah but he I think ended up only serving seven months after for all the everything yeah. yeah most of that was time served at the point or he had like one week left but it was just kind of like this crazy story and hearing some of the stuff he did or how he survived like so Maine the winters it can get to like negative 25 degrees Fahrenheit that's what I was gonna ask how did he so he would how did he survive I mean so he wasn't. He, he super had some kind of shelter. Chatty. He lived in a tent. Um, oh my god! But he had like a propane tank and a grill because he didn't want to set fires. So okay. he would wake up. He would sleep from like seven p.m. till two thirty a.m. and then wake himself up and melt snow and like pace and eat if he could if he had food Whoa. just to like keep him from dying in the cold. And in the cold, yeah. He was afraid of anyone finding him, so he didn't want to put tracks once it started snowing. So between November and April, he would try not to leave his camp. So he would like store up a bunch of propane and a bunch of food and stuff. You know between April and November and try to stay at his camp as long as he could unless he like really ran out of food or you know just go out as little as possible how did he prevent people from finding the camp so that's sort of the craziest part especially if you think all these break-ins are happening and people are looking for someone yeah. and to be honest I'm not super satisfied with what I found and okay. if I had done more research maybe I'd find more but so this one guy sort of started a correspondence with Chris when he was in jail, like was writing him letters and that was going on for a little while. He seemed more comfortable. He was, you know, a big reader out. He would steal books and stuff. He liked to read. So he was more comfortable with the written word than talking in person. But they ultimately ended up having like nine hours of conversation while he was in jail over the phone. He went and visited him and he got some parts of the story, but I think other people probably know more. But this guy, so when Chris was captured before he was put into jail, the like detective or whatever, he led them to his his camp. So this guy who was writing this account after his friendship with Chris was talking about how he knew roughly where the camp was. I guess Chris took him there once after he was out of jail or or someone took him there once and he like tried to find it again and like really couldn't. <laughs> but it was just sort of this perfect place. He it was like really what's it called like under like thick underbrush area. He cleaned out a piece of it, but it was virtually invisible from a few steps away. So oh. and it was a, a slight rise that allowed enough breeze to keep mosquitoes away, but not so much to cause severe wind chill in the winter. It was surrounded by a bunch of different boulders and trees. So he was really pale. Okay, so we camouflaged it. Yeah, yeah. he was really pale when they found him because he was basically living in the shade he spray painted everything like brown and green like even the clothespins he took to try to make it blend in more and he buried like a spare uh sleeping bag and like you know some other like basics somewhere else in like a different location so that if anyone discovered his camp he could easily kind of start over somewhere else because he just he like in 30 years there's only two stories of people who had actual contact with him he said he passed one hiker and they just said hi to each other and then and he didn't tell the police this, but um, it ultimately came out. There was this, I think it was a farmer and his son, or basically a man and his son. They interacted at one point. It was pretty brief. And they all agreed not to talk about it because he wasn't hurting Whoa. anyone. And so he yeah. didn't tell the police initially. But when the story came out, he admitted that it had happened or something. So It's just so amazing that he would go out of his way to avoid contact with people. Because, like, solitary confinement is, like, that's a horrible thing to happen to someone and didn't we learn from red rising that you can actually start to go insane after just like 48 hours of not not having human contact yeah but i also i'm a little bit in this i was some of my questions too i'm a little bit curious how much the confinement part of solitary confinement plays into that too because yeah, he it's not elective, you know sure. he was reading a lot he had a radio at least for a little while he was free to move around and then also i'm not sure how much like the asperger's piece of plays yeah. into it like if you're if you're not getting the same benefits himself. from human contact you know if it's more stressful than yeah. i don't but yeah i mean it's crazy and you hear about i mean we talked about kids i think who were in captivity too 
and like development issues and whatnot. You know, it's mm-hmm. so at least he was twenty. But his parents never reported him missing. Whoa, he has three or four older brothers That's and a younger sister. Alarming. Yeah, it's just. But he says he had a good home life, and I, I mean, it's just like this weird story. And honestly, this wasn't what I was planning to talk about. But once I stumbled upon it like thirty minutes ago, I read <laughs> a ton about it for thirty minutes, and that's I just had to tell you. But mm-hmm. I thought it was just absolutely fascinating, and it was sort of even from a legal standpoint an interesting case because there's really no precedent for it you know like Mm -hmm. not hurting it was like a ton of robberies but it's just such a weird situation and he doesn't really have an identity i don't it's just like it's just it's very it's very odd yeah he was just taking what he wanted to survive in the way he wanted in the way he wanted to live yeah but he still can't steal from people yeah and he it's also interesting he seems very he feels bad about it like he admits it was wrong and like feels really guilty and like thinks he deserves to be in jail so he definitely had like some ethical you know he wasn't like oh this is fine but I don't know. It's just you also feel so bad for him. Sure. But. So did you learn about someone else? Like when you were, you said you researched tracking and covering your. Yeah. So here's some things you should do if you're trying to avoid being detected. Okay. Yeah. I wanted like a how to. <laughs> when you're running. Like if your twin brother is trying to catch you and you want to figure <laughs> out who killed you first, here are some things you can do. Okay. You, wa- you want to basically avoid leaving marks. And one of the main things that will happen is the tread mark on your soul. People can tell a lot of things just by your footprint. Mm -hmm. So if you can, either change shoes a lot or try not to walk through soft or wet soil or cover the bottom of your shoes. So with like layers of cloth or even leaves, tie leaves Mm -hmm. to the bottom of your soles. They also said – When in a group, if you walk single file, it can help mask your actual numbers because good trackers can get some ideas of how big your group is. But Mm. also... if you're stepping in each other's footprints... Yeah, it can make your tracks deeper and therefore more obvious. So especially if you're in like tall grass or something, they say it's better to walk side by side a couple of feet apart because that tall grass will start to make a clearer trail if a lot of people walk through it the same way. Gotcha. Avoid thick brush because it's really hard to not leave a mark through something like that. Try not to break off tree branches or things like that either because that looks like something like... I would be so terrible at this. Every time we go hiking, I'm like crashing through the wild bike. <laughs> like... It, it's almost ridiculous. Like, if there's a root, I will trip over it. If there's a hole, I will step in it. Like, if there's a rock, I like I will hit it dead on. Like, I, I'm such a nightmare when I'm hiking. Okay, so one of the main things we learned is don't bring Marissa with you if you're hiding. <laughs> Just leave me behind. Yeah. Leave no trace. Bring no Marissa. I'll, I'll act as a diversion. Throw them <laughs> off your trail. It's all I'm good for. <laughs> they also said dogs. If you suspect you're being tracked by a dog, you just want to increase the distance you can as quickly as you can Ooh. or use terrain to slow them down. So climbing on rocky outcrops or other obstacles or surrounding yourself with a lot of other scents. So, you know, using game yeah. trails or, some, or um, a crowded city or something like that. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't like a here's some really great tricks a lot of it was like you know don't leave trash behind and try to keep the noise down even things like you know canisters will bang or keys will jingle or whatever Mm -hmm. they said to if you're traveling in a group come up with hand signals to pass information oh to keep quiet and stuff like that but yeah i think i'd be terrible at this too first of all i don't think i like the quiet that like i think i just if i know i can't talk i feel like a sudden need to tell people a lot of things <laughs> even though otherwise like i can read a book and ignore people for hours until someone tells me you have to be quiet and then it's a problem <laughs> yeah please be quiet for two minutes well we see um marco left which i think was smart like she leaves her kimono behind she leaves like her hairpins so her brother at least knows that it was her envoy that got attacked um and he's kind of using these things to trait to track her And we don't really see what she's doing in terms of, like, trying to hide her footprints, just that she's always trying to stay, it seems like, one step ahead of him. She did say she was trying to cover them, and it did sound like her twin... Oh, she did? Okay. Her twin brother, though, like, saw, like, he was able to track her, but the other guy who was with him, who I would assume is also good at this stuff, believed that she was dead, right? Or, like, whoever he, when he first went to the camp, when he first saw the remains of the stuff it sort of sounded, yeah. seemed like he was the only one who believed she might still be alive and i'm curious too how much of that was wanting to believe she was alive and therefore looking yeah. for more clues versus and what a like terrible scene to come across oh, where you just see like your sister's kimono you see a naked guy with 
a hairpin shoved in his eyeball. And knowing your sister and knowing she's not violent. Like, it's not like she was, you know, the girl in the other book who secretly practiced war stuff all the time up in her room. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, that would be a horrific scene to come across and then try and piece together what happened. Yeah. But, I mean, she's she's doing really well so far, I think. I mean, she really, like, when she... She's still alive, so, and she's... She's still alive. And people think she's a boy and not who she actually is, and no one's tried to kill her again, so... Yeah, and she already took out the one guy who tried to attack her, like, pretty well. Yep. And also, I like that she's really resourceful. Like, I like that she's an inventor. Mm -hmm. That came into play really early on, that she invents things and has a mind for, um, you know, creating really interesting tools. Very observant, yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm glad she's not, like, just suddenly secretly also a great warrior. (laughs) Right, right. Like, she's learning. She's not... She's not... She's more clever than, you know, a f- effective fighter or something. Yeah. Right. And also, I mean, there's so much of it where it's just like, she doesn't know what she could have been because she spent her whole life preparing to marry someone and that's it. Yeah, So being it's told. like... Yeah. She could have known so much more. Like, maybe she could have been a great warrior from the beginning if she had been trained or, you know, she doesn't have the knowledge that the other people of the Black Clan does, uh, or the people in the Black Clan do, just because she wasn't exposed to it and she didn't learn those things. And she's had so much knowledge withheld from her that it's almost like she's trying to absorb as much as she can now that she has access to it. Well, and I love that even in the face of all this and even admitting how scared or fearful she is, that she just has this curiosity and she has to ask these questions. Mm-hmm. Like, I love that. And I love yeah. and I love that she has a little bit of attitude. Oh, yeah, for sure. Some of her responses, I'm just like, you go, girl. Yeah. I know. <laughs> yeah. It seems like the guys are kind of – the guys – um, Okami, Ren, Yoshi, the members of the Black Clan, Ran Maru, who's the leader. It seems like they see something in her too. Yeah. Even though they don't, they don't know she's a girl, but they're intrigued by her. Which is one. Of, it seems like one of the first people who kind of let her even explore some of this stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Encouraged her. So, do you think the Black Clan are the ones who were sent to kill her? No, I don't either. I don't. I totally believe. I forget who it was who said this. Maybe it was Renshin, and he was like it's far too obvious to pin this on the black clan it's like being planted too hard yeah yeah and he's already said they don't normally attack women and children that's like not their mo and it seems like it's someone else who wanted to use the black clan as a very easy scapegoat so and then so when the emperor found out that her area had been attacked or her convoy had been attacked because he was told that she was killed, right, by the mistress. Isn't that what happened? Yes. Yes, yes. Do you think that was like a, it's done? Or do you think that was like a, oh, no, this thing happened? I was having trouble oh. reading it. Oh, oh, oh. Like you think that his mistress didn't want her to marry her son? Well, so here's my other thought. Okay. Give me, you have a theory. Let's hear it. So I actually like, I'm just, it's a partial theory. So you, we now know that the black clan members are the sons of the emperor's old like the people he killed his good friends who he turned on so maybe they're like sort of robin hooding it a little bit now or like against the emperor at least somewhat i don't really know much about what the black clan actually does ranmaru and okami yeah like i feel like they've got to have some kind of moral mission or like why are they partnered up like what are they why are they gangsters they seem to be like kind of good guys otherwise like you know there's gotta be linked by betrayal they said so that makes me think that they're against the emperor somehow i think they are too because i think the emperor is the one who killed um both their dad like ramaru's father yeah and by and ultimately the other guy's father too because yeah yeah, because they both got in his way so i think well i wonder if the emperor is somehow trying to frame the black clan to get rid of them because they're causing more trouble for him oh like because I also was sort of like, why is Mar- why is she marrying the emperor's son? Like, I don't really get – I get her family's, like, moving up in the world, but she hasn't even met him. Like, what if they just, like, pick someone who had to go through the forest and they wanted to so they, kill her and make it look like the Black Clan did it? Okay. So they wanted so they to have arrange a reason. for a bride for, for the son. For Raiden. Yeah. But they were planning to kill her all along to use her as to set up the Black Clan and make people like turn. To set up the Black them. Clan and make and, and and bring the Black Clan to justice and be like, Oh my gosh, they murdered the bride of my son. Yeah. Let's take them down. Yeah. That's a really good theory. I don't I feel like it's not quite right, but I feel like there's an element there that might turn out to be true, but I'm not sure which one. <laughs> well, I feel like I feel like you're right that um, Ranmaru and Okami are 
fighting for something greater Mm -hmm. because they mentioned that he, um, Ramaru is a ronin. Mm-hmm. The, that's the term they use, which is a samurai who... It actually means wanderer, hmm. and it's a samurai without lord or master, so like a fallen samurai who doesn't really have a master. Mm-hmm. And we do know that Ramaru is the son of the disgraced samurai at the beginning. Yep. Very first scene, welcome to this world. Oh, that was so hard to read, too. It yeah. opens with a disgraced samurai committing seppuku, Ooh, which, of course, is what I ended up researching. <laughs> Shocking. <laughs> but I feel... <laughs> I mean, it's me. But, um, so yeah, I think he definitely has something to fight for because now he is the son of a disgraced samurai and in this world of feudal Japan, that is um, a very dishonorable place to be. And, again, hearing like him tell the story and hearing what we heard the emperor say, it seems like it wasn't that his dad actually did something that deserved that he was like, tricked or you know i mean like even more it's not even just like accept your fate you did something you shouldn't have you're dishonorable it's like wait no i was actually or he was actually framed yeah to make it look like he committed treason against the emperor that's what i got from that story that he was telling when that by the tree eaten by the tree Mm -hmm. um he was telling the story of the three children and i'm not even kidding you katie i had to go back and reread that story like five times before (laughs) i understood it Because I was like, there's the justice one, there's the honor guy, there's the ambitious man. Well then, yeah, and I went back and read the part that the emperor, when the emperor was talking about his two friends, because I didn't, right. I didn't think much of it the first time, but then when he told the story, I had, I was like, wait, I want to make these connections, so. I can piece this together. Yeah. Yeah, it took me a while, but I got there. <laughs> so do you want to learn about Japanese ritual suicide? I mean, yeah, I would love to. <laughs> This book put me in the mood for that. Go ahead. Oh, man. I mean, what a brutal opener for the story. And that it was his friend, which I guess is a good thing. But yeah, I don't know. And it was in front of his son. Oh, like, how do you make your kid watch that? So, okay. So Japanese ritual suicide is also known as seppuku, seppuku or harakiri. Those are the two words for it. And it literally means slicing slicing of the stomach so hara harakiri is another word for it hara means stomach and kiri means cutting and it consists of plunging a short blade usually they use a a knife called a tanto um so that you stab it one quick question they talked a lot about (laughs) the different weapons so is it like standard to have one short blade and one long blade yeah yeah like a katana and then this tanto is like a, a shorter blade okay okay so let's start from the beginning so Seppuku was committed by samurai in Japan, often during the Edo Edo period, and they would commit seppuku for various reasons. One would be um, if they were on the battlefield, let's say, sometimes a a samurai would choose to end his life rather than be captured by the enemy. So if a battle went wrong and they knew they were going to be overtaken... Was that considered the better thing to do? Like, instead of being a prisoner of war, you should kill yourself? Yes. Okay. Because... It was, it was um, a tactic to avoid capture and, and to avoid being tortured for information that would then bring greater retribution against your allies. So, like, if they could torture you for information, you, you wouldn't want that to happen. I'm so glad we just... Don't they now have little pills you can put under your tongue that you can swallow instead? <laughs> so you don't have to commit seppuku? <laughs> Not that I'm going to be in a situation yeah. where either of these things is hopefully ever an option, but yeah. Wow. Okay. I'm with you. But a similar concept. Die before you get tortured into giving away our secrets kind of thing. Exactly. Um, So it was either either performed in the battlefield or it was um, planned as a a really elaborate ritual. For what purpose? So it was committed for a couple reasons. So like if you were a samurai who committed treason against the emperor, like basically if you broke the code, um, which they talked about in the book a little bit. Those eight things at the beginning? Yes, exactly, exactly. The tenements of um, Bushido, Bushido, sorry, um, which is like the way of the warrior. So if you broke one of the code, you were considered very disgraced, and that was like a huge dishonor. And seppuku was a way that you could restore honor to your family. So it was a last rite where you were given the chance to restore your honor by enduring this horrible death to kind of prove that to prove that you're strong and you can withstand it and it was just a way to like give your loved ones 
to restore honor to your family, essentially. So what would be the alter? Like, if you didn't do that, they would just kill you some other way? Yes. Okay. So sometimes seppuku was um, performed or was carried out as a form of um, capital punishment. So obligatory seppuku for, like, a disgraced samurai. Especially if you were a samurai who committed a really serious offense, like rape or robbery, um, corruption, murder that wasn't sanctioned. In those cases, the samurai was usually told of their offense and then given time to commit seppuku and it was usually before sunset but if they were uncooperative then it was it could happen where they could be restrained and that seppuku could be carried out by an executioner but there would be no trial or anything yeah and that was not i mean that that would not restore honor to your family yeah yeah yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. okay so to commit seppuku, the samurai would be bathed and then dressed in white robes and served a last meal. And then he would... I wouldn't be able to eat if I knew. Oh, gosh. Are you kidding me? No way. They actually say that a lot of inmates on death row never eat their last meals. Yeah, I don't think I could. I mean, how could you? Um, so then they also have time for reflection in which they write a death poem. Hmm. Interesting. So that was part of the process where they would write like a reflection on death. They were meant to like give an observation on their life. Um, and then they would have the sword in front of them. And essentially what they would do would be they would plunge the dagger into their stomach and then they would move it from right to left. And then in some extreme, there's like different ways to, to carry this out. And in some extreme methods, um, you then move the dagger vertically so that everything that's on the inside comes out on the outside. And that sounds like what the first scene, that's what happened, right? Because it said cutting slowly to the left and up to the right. Yes, but the difference is that in this scene, there is, and, and this was very common, was this, the disgraced samurai would appoint a second or a kai shikunin. And this person had a really important job because this was a friend or someone close to the um, samurai who was in charge of ending his life. So instead of bleeding to death, there would be a moment where, and you would arrange it before the ritual. So he, the Kashikunin would know exactly when to strike and he would strike with like this long blade and cut the back of the neck, mm -hmm. which is like, they would cut like the nape of the neck, but they wouldn't sever the head because it would be really, it would be kind of not great if, you know, a head were to roll during yeah. the ceremony. It was supposed to be, you know, relatively like a, it's a ritual. Yeah, it's a ritual. Yeah. So they would they would cut the nape of the neck like to sever the spinal cord, mm. like Attack on Titan style, and then they would they would, that would end the samurai's life. And so the um, Kashikunin had to be like an expert swordsman, and he had to be really trusted because he had a really important job. Yeah. Oh man, what a hard that would be really hard too. I know. If it's like your but, best friend or your brother yeah. or whatever, yeah. So, but wait, so they didn't always do that or they did always, you always had someone They do that. didn't always do that. So there was a form of seppuku that was more extreme um, and that was called Jumanji Giri. And this was like a more taxing form of seppuku and there was no kashikunin to put an end to your suffering. So oh. this involved the more painful vertical cut and a samurai who committed this way of suicide was expected to bear the suffering quietly, and then he would pass away with his hands over his face, and he would essentially bleed to death. Mm. And I was reading about this one admiral. Um, he orchestrated a lot of kamikaze runs in World War II, and when Japan surrendered, he committed this form of seppuku, and it took him 15 hours to die. Oh my goodness. Like brutal, brutal, brutal. Ugh. I know. Um, so in case we were wondering, there's no way I could be a samurai. Nope. We've discussed that and determined it. But, you know, I did read also that um, as the rituals kind of progressed, eventually committing this seppuku became less about, you know, stabbing yourself and bearing this pain silently. And it was, um, it became more ritualized. So eventually um, the process would be that as soon as the samurai reached for his blade, the kashikunin would, would strike the neck. Um, and then eventually, even the blade that the samurai reached for was replaced with something very symbolic, like a fan or something like that. And it was just, it was just sim like symbolism that he was going to do this, but someone would end his life faster. 
Mm. And then women committed it too, which is kind of fascinating. So female ritual suicide was practiced by the wives of samurai sometimes, who if this if their husbands committed seppuku, sometimes they would as well. Would it just depend on like how bad the crime was or if they were involved in it or? <sighs> I'm not really sure. I think it's either if something that they perceived as dishonorable, which today we probably would not perceive as dishonorable, um, like something that happened to Mariku maybe if mm-hmm. when she was attacked, mm-hmm. which is super sad. And I guess so the women would either cut the arteries of their neck. Um, that was usually the way they would do it. And before doing this, they would often tie their knees together so that their body would be found in a quote-unquote dignified pose, which is just like, mm. har- it's just oh heartbreaking goodness. to think about that. Well, with this kind of world, I'd want to go run off and live in the woods. Uh, yes, it would be a much better alternative to committing seppuku. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I mean, it's it's still, it's like, I mean, the act itself, I, you know, me, I don't do any of this violence or blood stuff anyways, but I mean, it is actually like kind of interesting just how much of a ritual mm-hmm. and how it had to do with honor and some of these, like, it's actually kind it of a It was so cool elaborate. That's what I can't get over. Thing on, on one way. Yeah. And just also like what fortitude and like how strong do you have to be to do that to yourself and just sit there and let, like, I can't even imagine. Yeah, yeah that was definitely an, an interesting place to start the story. <laughs> yes. And it seems like... The son, Remaru, is, I feel like that's going to come back where that is going to be his whole motivation for what he's doing now. I'm just curious if, so we think that he doesn't know who Mariko is, but I'm wondering if anyone suspects anything. Yeah, like I'm I'm curious how if it wasn't the Black Clan who attacked her, which I don't think it was, even if it wasn't my other weird theory, like why they're being framed for it and how and if they know anything about her and if they find out her identity if they'd be like on her side or again you know like i'm just i'm yeah there's a lot of i'm yeah let's read more it's what <laughs> well, i want to say <laughs> i think it's interesting that they are now it seems like everyone is going to be meeting in hanami i mean that's an, that's such the next chapter title yeah and we know that um, Mariku was told if she can design the throwing star, they'll take her to Hanami. And Raiden, Roku, and Kenshin are, are all going to Hanami as well. So I was like, oh, oh my gosh, they're all gonna, they're all gonna meet up there somehow. Well, okay, but how weird was it? So after they made the throwing star deal, Okami and Ranmaru were talking and they said basically, let's keep our promise. But Ramaru was like, then you can do whatever you want afterward. Mm-hmm. So it, this still is a weird, he's not quite a, rec- or she's not quite a recruit, but she's not quite a prisoner, but she's, like, it's just, it's a weird dynamic. And I'm curious, because they were told at the place that this boy was asking for them. So if they don't know who she really is, who do they think she is? Or how, mm-hmm. you know, I'm just, yeah. And why do they want her? Yeah. And why would they, yeah, take her to their secret location and stuff? And is that where we're to believe Okami keeps disappearing off to? The tea house or the yeah the, the, yeah because he, he, they she kept saying that she noticed that he like disappeared during the night at odd times yeah and they did say something they referenced well she kept thinking it was the place with all the pleasure houses right mm-hmm. so I I wonder if he was really going there but he wasn't going for the pleasure house he's going some, for some other reason why is he going there and why is he going so often yeah I want to know more about all of them and I also want to know more about Ren the one who's kind of mean to her because. Mm-hmm. We hear something where, like, she was complaining about how mean he was. And I think it was Yoshi who was like, well, he saw his whole family butchered. But we don't really know the circumstances of that. So I'm curious to learn more about him and Roshi as well. Or, um, and Yoshi as well. Yeah. Well, in general, I'm curious if why these people are following them and what their purpose is. I do feel like it's got to be something more honorable than just, like, we want to rob people and... Like, I feel like there's something bigger going on, but we're not really sure what their mission is or what their what is unifying them besides this kind of subtle idea that it might be revenge related or, mm-hmm. you know, what what happened to their dads back in the day. Oh, I can't wait to find out. Because, yeah, because at the beginning, the boy, when the he's just a boy watching it happen, he talks about the two suns and the two moons and how it's a story where the triumphant sun rose high above its enemies and like kind of seeing this happen to his dad i I just feel like it's some sort not revenge might be the wrong word it's something more 
justice based, mm-hmm. I think, than that. But so, but sort of this idea of writing this wrong that happened to his family. I feel like that's got to be related, right? Yeah. But do we think that um, Raiden is the third child or Roku? Because they were talking um, about three sons, right? And like, yeah. Well, that's what, yeah. I don't know. I forget about. I forget. What do you think? I think that Raiden's involved somehow. I don't know about Roku, but. I feel like there has to be some kind of connection between the mistress and and Raiden and that's then going the on. two yep. other boys, Ramaru and, and Okami. Yeah. Oh, I really I really want to find out. Yeah, I'm definitely intrigued <laughs> and excited to read more. And I want to know more about um Kenshin, her brother. I like how he is in love with he has a love interest who it's like it seems like it's forbidden. The daughter of the metalsmith. Yeah, or it seems like it already played out partially, or... Amaya is her name, yeah. Yeah. I don't know if it's like she's beneath his status, and someone found out, and he's not supposed to, or if he... Because he seems a little bit oblivious, like if she really liked him, and he like messed it up somehow, Mm -hmm. or... Like, I'm kind of curious, or if it's a little bit of both. That's why I'm like, there's so many interesting elements of this story. Like, I don't want magic involved. I just want it to be about these people and their lives, and their conflicts, and like handling it themselves without magic i don't know yeah yeah there's enough going on and enough enough of interest we don't need we don't need it so and the thing with magic is without a lot of strict rules and stuff it can be sort of a cop-out sure and since it's not really a book about magic at least not yet we don't know anything about the rules so it almost seems like it could be a you know cop-out solution or something Mm -hmm. but but it isn't yet so hopefully it won't become that and we shall see we shall what, what else are we supposed to do? It's been so long since we've done this. Well, um, for next week, we'll finish We'll finish book. the book. Okay. And we still have Instagram and Facebook and all the things. Oh. I just haven't been on them in a while, but I know you've been updating things. Yes. We tell people to go check that out. Yeah, check us out on Instagram and Facebook. And you can email us at mnktalkya at gmail.com if you have any suggestions for books you would like us to read. And also, okay... So you hinted at something really cool for a joke. Can we do it? Yeah. We have a special guest here for our dad joke this week. So we always end with a dad joke, and it was just Father's Day this past weekend. So Katie's dad was going to tell us a dad joke this week in honor of Father's Day. So hi, Dad. Hey. How are you? Hi. Can you can you hear me? Yeah. Hey, Marissa. Yes. How are you doing? <laughs> Good. How are you? Good. I'm a big fan. We're so glad. Thanks so much for um, giving us a joke this week. It was my turn, and I completely forgot, so. Yeah, you have to do a joke. <laughs> okay. Well, so actually, I was, like, reviewing jokes off the website because I couldn't, like, let you guys down without a good joke, and I thought, well, that's cheating because yeah. a dad joke has to be something you just come up with. Spontaneous. So just, like, so literally, like, five minutes ago, I came up with one. Yes. Okay, I'm ready. All right. So what what do the peas do... When they break their shell. <laughs> what do they I don't know. Scream. I don't know. No, they get a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, my that's God. A good that's one, such a good All right. one. <laughs> oh, my God. That was great. <laughs> Thank well, you I can't so wait much. to listen to this episode. Thank you yeah, thanks so for being much. Our guest. And thanks for being such a good fan. I don't think he's read a single one of the books, but he's listened to no, a but lot I of the episodes. <laughs> I, lo- I love the commentary. <laughs> we do discuss some interesting facts. Good. I can't wait to hear. We've been listening to your fiance um, read all his Google reviews. They're quite hysterical themselves. <laughs> yeah, he has really funny Google reviews. I'll have to send them to you sometime. Or... The his, Chipotle, his Chipotle review. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> in case you've never been to Chipotle before, it's nothing special at this particular Chipotle, but he wrote a really long review and it ended oh. basically with, it's like every other Chipotle. <laughs> hey, we all have And then he also wrote a review of the hospital that you both <laughs> Oh, he did? <laughs> oh, I haven't read that one yet. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, I don't want to overstay my welcome, but thanks for having me on the show. Thank yeah, you. we'd love to have you again. Thanks, Dad. Bye. Happy Father's Bye. Day. Happy Father's Day. That was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> that was such a good joke, too. <laughs> well, so the funny thing is, too, our first day, we're at um, we're in Hilton Head, South Carolina, and our first day here, we saw a bunch of deer in the backyard, and, for, and this is Aaron's college graduation trip, my little sister, and my college graduation trip, we were in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and we saw some deer, and it was about this time of year, so I just saw on my Facebook feed, 
or my Facebook memories, I had this thing where my dad said, oh, we saw a bunch of deer, and my dad goes, it's nothing to fawn over, deer. <laughs> and then I posted it, and then at dinner, my dad was like, what was the funniest thing that happened today? And then he, like, retold his joke, and we were like, okay, dad. And then, so I posted that, and then I saw him reading it and walking by my, like, cabin and laughing. <laughs> and so, so and he just retold that joke the day before, and then it showed up on my memory. So I was worried oh, he was going to come God. up here and tell you about fawning over the deer. He really wanted you to think it was funny. <laughs> it, I mean, it was really funny the first time. It, it is hilarious. But the 17th time, I was like, okay, oh <laughs> get some goodness. new material, man. <laughs> it was funny. I was, like, getting ready for this, and he texted me, let me know if you need me to come up and tell a joke. And then I went out, and I was like, I need you to I will have one hour. <laughs> it better be great. It's your one chance. <laughs> Don't let me down, Dad. And he didn't. Yeah, not hurt. That was a good one. That was funny. Well done. I mean, I think I needed to just lighten the mood after your research. Yeah. Was, you know. I mean, that's yeah. how it works. You're here for the comedic relief. I'm here for the deep, dark things that no one really wants to talk about. <laughs> as soon as I read that scene, I was like, yes, I'm researching this, and Katie is not even going to be surprised. And I, I didn't even consider researching it because I knew that I, you'd tell me plenty. <laughs> well, next week, I already know what I'm going to research next week, and it's not as it's not as dark, so don't okay, worry. I'll probably end up on something completely random, like, how oh so then also while I was doing this research they were talking about this this guy who lived in the woods and how he was like it was like capturing a giant squid because there might be other hermits who've lived what? undetected for 30 years that we've never caught out in the world you know this is just like the first one That's that he's true. done this this long and been caught and then I almost went into a whole thing about giant squid Wait, but what about but giant squids how, why was he trying to catch a giant squid no, they were comparing it like we've only caught one giant. Oh! You know, it's like how much, but like oh. that's like that's like what happens when I research. I like read one throwaway like analogy or something, and I'm like, ooh, let me go dig into this squid. more. I thought you were talking about a hermit who was trying to capture a giant squid. <laughs> no, and now I'm thinking about hermit crabs and all kinds of stuff. So. Oh, yeah. my we'll sister. See, we'll see what I research. My sister actually texted me today, just because we're already off topic and rambling. Uh-huh. Um. <laughs> She had a really good idea where she wanted us, she was comparing how much it costs to adopt a puppy versus how much it costs to adopt an Alaskan king crab. (laughs) What? So she was like, okay, it's like $120 to adopt a rescue dog, but live Alaskan king crab costs $12 per pound, and the average Alaskan king crab is, uh, is 10 pounds. So for the price of a rescue dog, you can buy an Alaskan king crab and let it live in your bathtub. Do they cuddle as well as a dog, though? This was definitely something from Instagram that she found. But then I was like, let's all go in together on an Alaskan king crab. Because we just give, we gave her a Tamagotchi for her birthday. Did I tell you that? Oh, that's I love that. No, you didn't Chad tell me. Chad and I me. gave her a Tamagotchi for her birthday. I didn't even know they still made those. Me either. They do. And um, she was really stressed out about it because she was like, I'm a single mom now. Like, I have a high profile job. Like, how can I take care of this Tamagotchi when I'm at my law job? I'm just waiting for a coworker to be like talking about their actual kids and her make a comparison to her Tamagotchi. Well, they, they, they were asking her like, "Oh my, is it still alive?" Like, and she got really stressed out because she it was beeping during the night and she forgot to feed it and it got upset. Oh no! Um, yeah, he has recently passed on, but she was a really good mother. I have to say, I just like that. I felt bad that it was giving her more anxiety than I anticipated. Well, so I was such a nerd. My first and I think maybe only Tamagotchi was I went to this camp and I didn't make any friends. I sat with the teacher at recess and we talked about books, except then she like had a Tamagotchi and she didn't know how to use it. So I helped her figure it out. And then at the end of camp, I got it wasn't a teacher. It was like a camp. It was like, you know, a high school kid probably. But yeah, that was me. I was like, I didn't make any friends at camp except for the counselor and her Tamagotchi were my two friends. (laughs) The authority figure (laughs) who I sat with all day. Uh. <laughs> I meant to do some more research about Renea Dia. Um, I know I meant to look into it, but I got so sucked into the story. About I know, me too. This guy, yeah. And I was oh about your research. Yeah, <laughs> I thought you meant the story that she wrote. <laughs> oh no, I mean I was sucked into that too. No, but... that was a really fascinating story. <laughs> I still like I might have to read more about him after this because I'm still like, but what? How did? Why? What is going on? But yeah. She, I did read that it, she said it only takes her about four to six months to write a book. Wow. Which is crazy yeah. short. 
And it's good. Like, I mean, I don't have any complaints right now. Yeah, I'm into it. I will... I will say it does feel like it's for a slightly younger audience than what we've read so far. So far, maybe yeah. it's because we've read a lot of um, new adult and not a lot of traditional YA on our YA podcast. But this one, I, for some reason, this one did feel a lot younger to me. I agree. Okay. On that note, keep reading. Bye, bookworms. And go get a library card. M&K Talk YA is produced and edited by Marissa Snyder and Katie Bradford. Original music composition by Timothy Milkey. Logo design by Marissa Snyder. For updates and extras, visit mnktalkya.com or follow us on Instagram and Facebook. And if you haven't already, please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. We would like to thank James Tobias, Chad Snyder, Meredith Kelfie, and Michael Howard for all of their support. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.